the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Sideline Sanity with me, Michelle Tafoya, brought to you by Legacy Precious Metals. There's never been a better time to invest in precious metals. Go to LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. Did you know that there is a foundation for individual rights and expression? Who knew we'd need one? But we do. And thank goodness there is one. And we will talk to its executive director next. For nearly three decades, she's reported the action from the sidelines. She started very young. She's covered the NBA, NFL, Olympics, and the college football and basketball national championships. And now, during these insane times in our world, Michelle Tafoya thinks we need a serious dose of sanity. This is Sideline Sanity with your host, one of the sanest people on planet Earth, Michelle Tafoya. Robert Shibley is the executive director of FIRE. And I, I must tell you, Robert, that I, um, I'm so glad your organization exists. And it's existed longer than I've realized. Um, can you give me and our listeners a quick background on how this, how FIRE came to be and what its mission is? Yeah, sure. Uh, FIRE was founded in 1999. Um, to deal with the rise of 90s era political correctness and the way it was uh, being enforced at our nation's colleges and universities. And FIRE is unique. It was founded by a, um, a liberal and a conservative civil libertarian, the liberal Harvey Silverglade, who's a civil liberties lawyer who worked for the ACLU, and the uh, conservative Alan Charles Kors, who's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, they wrote a book called The Shadow University that was published in 1998. And the outpouring uh, of people saying, hey, this is happening to me, too. You know, all these abuses you're describing, like, you got to help me, um, led them to found fire, which they hadn't intended to do uh, the next year. They didn't realize just how much, uh, you know, there was out there. And so uh, fire was founded as the foundation for individual rights and education. And we've been defending students and faculty members on uh, college campuses and their free speech and due process rights uh, for more than 20 years. But uh, just in June, we announced that we are going to be expanding our mission and we've changed our name to the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. And uh, we are going to be taking on free expression uh, in the broader society. So no longer just on college campuses, but uh, across America. It's remarkable. And I, I, I figure that change has come about because of the growing number of incidents in this country yes. of people feeling like their expression is being canceled, if you will. Is, that, is this a response to that? Yeah, the demand has certainly increased uh, by a huge amount around. I've been at fire for almost 19 years around 2012 or 2013. I would have said that it looked like we were winning uh, the war for free expression on campuses. But then around 2014, uh, things seem to start going um, in the opposite direction. And, you know, now we're seeing uh, the kind of 
um, social and also sometimes, you know, um, actual legal or, you know, disciplinary punishments uh, that we've seen on campus uh, for people who speak out against whatever the, the mainstream is on their campus or whatever they want the mainstream to be uh, being extended uh, outside of that. And I really do think um, social media has driven the exposure of people to that. I mean, I when I started at FIRE, really the only place you were likely to get censored and maybe not expect it uh, was on a college campus. And now, um, you know, there are hundreds of thousands, maybe millions. I mean, nobody really knows uh, of people every year in this in this country alone who they tweet something and, it, you know, it turns out what they tweeted needs to, you know, it, they get silenced on that or they get banned from Twitter or they get thrown off of Facebook um, and so, yeah, the, the demand and the awareness has really grown. And, and so we're going to try to meet that and push back against it. So you said you noticed or you felt like you were winning and then 2014 things sort of started to change. Do you think that because if, if social media has been around a while, but did it pick up to such an extent that 2014 was sort of that marker or was there anything else going on that you think contributed to that? Well, that's the only thing that we think. Um, John Haidt, who uh, co-authored the book, The Coddling of the American Mind with my boss, Greg Lukianoff, um, he pointed out that 2014 was um, generationally speaking when the first students who were allowed by law since they were 13 to engage in social media because it used to be um, unclear whether under 18s could be on social media. They changed the law. And so those 13 year olds who could be exposed around 20. 13 and 14 is when they started arriving on campus and reaching adulthood. And that's the best explanation I've heard. I don't know if it's right, um, but it does. there does seem to have been sort of an inflection point around that time. That is really interesting. And it's got, it's, it's really, it seems to me that so many people are aware of people getting trampled on, people getting canceled, yeah. people getting shut up, suspended, all of this. And we're outraged by it. But how... Why aren't you winning more? In other words, like, why is this idea that we can just sort of dissolve people and their opinions seem to be so, so prevalent when so many of us are, are against it? Well, it is interesting. Um, the idea of shunning people is a really ancient one. I mean, the ancient Greeks, you know, exile was the second worst punishment to death, right? Um, being exiled from uh, your social group, your city, whatever it was. Um, and so I, I think there's something in human nature that, you know, we sort of instinct instinctively want to push out people who are upsetting us, who have opinions we find offensive or upsetting. It's, it's sort of how we uh, police society to some extent. But part of having, I mean, liberal democracy is also a fairly new thing, right? And if we're going to live in a diverse democratic republic with lots of people who aren't just like us, who don't look like us, they might have different religions, different ideologies, etc. We can't afford to be trying to shun everybody all of the time if we're going to expect people to participate in our society. Um, you know, i I've said this before, but my dad at one point lived next to a, a guy from Saudi Arabia who had two wives, right? Uh, this is next door neighbor in a, in a suburb, you know, and you don't expect that kind of thing. And, you know, but in America, that's the kind of place where you can have that. That's not something my dad agrees with, but it's, you can still be neighbors. You can yeah. still 
get along, you know, and, and you have to learn to be able to be with one another. And with all the talk about diversity, it's amazing how little how little consideration seems to be given to actually teaching people to be around those who aren't like them right. and still, you know, get along and function and be able to, you know, see one another as neighbors if you don't agree with everything. And just as human beings. I mean, right. you, you talk about diversity and it, it strikes me, I get a little bit of a kick out of it until I get really angry about it. The diversity of thought doesn't seem to be included. Uh, we want, you know, diversity seems to be based on your skin color, your gender, your lack of gender, you know, your religion and all of that. But, you know, if you, let, you could be a diverse individual skin color wise, take, talk about a, a black conservative these days. They, they tend to be ostracized from their communities. That's not diversity. That's not diversity of thought is, is, is that, am I, do I have that right? I think you do have that right. And it's, it's kind of interesting because the, one of the animating beliefs behind the civil rights movement was that, you know, your skin color is, is skin deep, right? It's, it's that that's not what makes you, you, that shouldn't right. be the thing that governs how people treat you. And so it's interesting that, you know, we have this push for diversity and it's been going on for my whole life. Um, and I think it's had a lot of successes. Um, obviously, we live in a more diverse, you know, racially speaking nation than we used to. Um, and so you're seeing more of that. But it's interesting because the the 60s people weren't wrong. It is it is a skin deep thing in in a real way, in a way that um, someone's different religion, someone's different viewpoint is not. You know, you can. Right. It is actually, you know, more of a surface characteristic. And I know this, you know, maybe not not everybody agrees with this. And obviously there are cultural things that go along with it. But um, I think maybe one of the lessons is that we can learn to get along with people who look different from ourselves, but we're having a much harder time learning to get along with people who don't think the same way. And we certainly haven't made the same level of effort uh, to do that. Right. No question about it. Robert Shibley, our guest, the executive director of FIRE, couple of interesting cases they have been involved in. We'll get into one of those when we come back. You know, Ronald Reagan once said, all great change in America starts at the dinner table. And there's no company doing more to help you bring good stuff to your dinner table than good ranchers. Those two words, you want to remember them, good ranchers. They deliver a 100% American meat experience to your door. And believe it or not, that's not as easy to do as you think. They guarantee your meat is born, raised, and harvested here in the United States. I was shocked to learn that so much of the grass-fed beef that we buy online or in the store is not grown here in America. So this way, you know where it's coming from. You're already buying meat, so why not buy it in a way that strengthens the American farm? Supporting American causes can feel great. And it can also really taste good with good ranchers. Sometimes it feels like you can't get everyone to the table. Maybe there's just going to be a couple of you. But here's what Good Ranchers provides. A huge box of individually packed steaks, hamburgers, chicken, seafood. So grab as few or as many as you need. Throw them on the grill. Throw them in the oven and bake them. And I did that over the 4th of July weekend recently. And everybody loved it. Uh, it, This stuff is really, really good. It's And it's not like... One delivery is good and then the next one isn't really good. 
Every box is superior quality, flavor, and value. Good Ranchers is a company that supports American agriculture and business. They support us here at Sideline Sanity, and I love supporting them. So make sure you use my code. It's my last name, Tafoya, T-A-F-O-Y-A, to get 30 bucks off your order, plus get free express shipping. You can make gatherings at the table common again with uncommonly good food with Good Ranchers. Take advantage of this offer before it's gone. Go to GoodRanchers.com slash Tafoya, T-A-F-O-Y-A, to start bringing people to the table and start bringing American-raised and harvested meat to the table. This is a great thing for America. Seriously delicious food comes from Good Ranchers. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. All right. I'm looking at a press release from your website and the headline is proposed title nine regulations would roll back essential free speech, due process protections for college students. Give us the nutshell. What is going on here? Right. Well, um, in 2020, the uh, Trump administration under uh, Secretary of Education uh, DeVos uh, issued um, Title IX regulations that were intended to uh, create a fairer system uh, for uh, those accused and and for those um, who were the accusers as well um, of sexual misconduct on um, college campuses. There's also an application to K through 12 schools, but college campuses is uh, probably where the action is more. And um, those were intended to they so Title IX folks should know that Title IX because it's a it's a spend it goes through the spending power uh, of Congress. It applies to basically every university, public or private. Um, So this isn't just public schools. It applies to everybody and everybody has to follow it. Um, And so there were provisions in there that had uh, never been, uh, you know, made actually required before. I think my my favorite is probably the presumption of innocence, um, (laughs) which uh, we actually did a couple of years of surveys before. And we we looked at the top 53 schools, uh, according to U.S. News, and around 75% of them did not explicitly say you are innocent until proven guilty um, in their uh, sexual misconduct regulations before uh, the new ones uh, before 2020. Uh, so uh, other changes they made, uh, a lot of schools had had a, um, a system where instead of having a hearing where you would get to question the you know witnesses who were saying you did whatever, question your accuser, um, even through a, uh, a representative, um, they had what's what they call the single investigator model. Um, and this means that uh, when a complaint came in, one person, usually a, a Title IX um, 
coordinator at the university or somebody with a job like that would take the complaint, uh, you know, talk to the uh, accuser, talk to the accused, decide what witnesses they wanted to talk to, decide what evidence they felt like putting together, um, put to, decide what they think happened, put together that recommendation, or sometimes just decide what the punishment would be. And that was it. That was your process. So, so they were basically the judge, jury, and executioner all in one person. That is precisely. And so the 2020 regulations um, said that you couldn't do that anymore, that you had <laughs> to have um, the ability to uh, cross-examine your accuser uh, through a um, through a representative. So okay. not face-to-face in order to, to deal with the, the obvious sensitivity of, of something. Sure. Um, it said that uh, you got to see all of the evidence uh, that was being used against you that wasn't guaranteed uh, oh before, uh, including uh, including the evidence that might tend to clear you. Uh, universities didn't necessarily have to give that to you before the 2020 regulations. Um, really, almost anything you can imagine uh, was in place on, on some campus. And so the 2020 regs really regularized that. Uh, these new regulations, uh, which President Biden uh, is, you know, promised to, uh, he promised to roll those back uh, to some extent, actually, as one of his campaign promises. Um, these new regs uh, roll back some of that. They roll back uh, the ability to cross-examine your accuser. Uh, okay. They once again say that you can have a single investigator. Uh, they did not roll back uh, the presumption of innocence, uh, okay. thankfully. So, thankfully, okay. Uh, so- got that one. <laughs> Um, so yeah, you're, you're going through a lot of different areas where it would really be helpful for the people designing these systems to put themselves in the place, not just of the accuser, which I think is important to do and to have a a system that has any credibility, it has to be something that all sides can believe in. If you don't agree with the result, you have to believe that it was a fair process. Well, right. That's Um, kind of, you know, you, you see lawyers all the time come out losing a case and say, we're very disappointed, but we respect the process. You know, it's our judicial system. And this would seem to be a microcosm of that. Why is the Biden administration, why do they want to roll some of this back? What's the, what's the end goal there? What do they get out of this? Well, you know, it, it's uh, it sort of depends on what level of cynicism you want to apply <laughs> to the uh, to the aspect. I mean, I, I, it's a political football to some extent. Uh, President Biden um, that is uh, one of the authors, I think, or sponsors of the Violence Against Women Act. It's always this area has always been uh, one of his uh, legislative interests as a senator and continues to be as president. Um, and you know, that is a very sort of pro um, complainant uh, kind of tack to take. And I think that they would say what they want to do is they want to make a system where complainants always feel safe coming forward, that they are that every single um, person who can come forward or who is sexually assaulted or is a victim of sexual harassment is willing to come forward. Um, and the easier you make it, I, th- I think their sense is that people are more likely to do that if they believe that the person they accuse will be found guilty. Um, and they're less likely to do it if they, if they think it will be challenging or hard. The problem is, is that while that, that may or may not be true, what we do know is when you eliminate all of these protections, it always, you know, the accused is the one whose rights get shortchanged. Right. And that's particularly important when you have accused um, who are 
uh, members of less popular groups. Um, you know, traditionally in this country and others, it happens to racial minorities. It might happen to women instead of men. It, it tends to, you know, benefits for the accused um, are generally protections for the least the people with the least power um, in society. And so running those down um, is, is always asking for a level of injustice that I don't think Americans will will tolerate. And we've yeah, seen it, it, more than 600 cases under the Obama, under the Obama regime of people uh, suing and saying that it wasn't fair um, in court. Right. Right. It, 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 it isn't fair. And it seems to me pretty obvious. And I, d- I don't know that this is getting as much attention as it deserves right now. I think, you know, we've got so many issues yeah. we're dealing with this in this country, but if people knew that this was going on, like I, the first time I saw it, I thought, you've got to be kidding me. We, yeah. Look, you, they were asked to believe all women that, okay. So, but we've seen instances where it's been abused, right? Where false accusations have come out. And the Duke lacrosse case is the perfect example, right? Where some of these young men, their lives were ruined in the short term. Who knows how it affected the trajectory of their lives by this false false accusation. So you would think we would have learned from that, but maybe not. Yeah. I mean, the fact is when you are trying, when you have a process that's intended to get to the truth of something and people have two different stories, you can't by default believe one side or the other. It's you have to look at the evidence and look where that leads you. And if you don't have a fair process to actually look, you know, see all the evidence, you know, question, you know, who was there, et cetera, try to figure out whether somebody's story makes any sense. Um, Then you're going to have obvious injustices happen. And that's, you know, what had happened under the old system. And I'm, I'm, you know, certain that this is going to introduce more of it uh, once these new regulations take effect as well. Oh, my goodness. And that is just one issue. We'll discuss another one with Robert Shibley right after this. You know, since November of last year, the stock market has plummeted. Think about that word, plummeted. But gold has been on the rise. Now, you cannot say that about all investments, but you can say it about gold. So meanwhile, gas prices are a joke. The stock market is super volatile. Inflation is worse than it was a year ago. And now we have this war with Russia and Ukraine that we can only hope and pray ends soon. The markets don't like instability. You know, stock market feels all this stuff. But the good news is you have options. Gold prices are rising as investors turn to gold for protection. Gold provides a hedge against inflation and protects against a weakening dollar. So here are three words for you to remember. Legacy precious metals. It's the only company I trust for investing in gold and silver. You need an investment that's going to protect your wealth and retirement. Call Legacy Precious Metals today. You want to be proactive on this while there's still time. Remember 2008? Yeah, not a pleasant memory. Those who invested in gold, though, saw huge gains while others simply lost their retirements. Legacy Precious Metals can advise you on all of your options for investing in gold and silver. What have you got to lose by calling them? You can speak to an IRA expert at Legacy Precious Metals. Here's the number, 866-528-1903, 866-528-1903, or download their free investor's guide at LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. 
All right, Robert Shibley of FIRE. One of the hottest topics of the day is CRT, critical race theory. First of all, the word theory should be very important when people pay attention to this. It is not truth, is it? It is a theory. How is it coming into sort of your universe of complaints, uh, just sort of raising the ire of people on campuses who, some of whom are passionately behind it and some who are passionately against it? Yeah, um, you know, critical race theory is, um, it's, it's not a new, I, I, should, I should point out first that it's not new. It's actually a fairly um, old uh, kind of philosophy. Uh, and, you know, I remember people talking about critical theory back when I was in law school, and it stems uh, from the same idea. Um, I think why it has become such an issue lately is um, after uh, George, after George Floyd's killing, um, there was this, you know, people have been talking about there being a racial reckoning and that sort of thing. And so Critical race theory is a set of tools that you can use in order to try to figure out what race means in America and in critical theory generally. Um, you know, you can apply it to, uh, you know, sex and feminism. You can apply it to, you know, it's it's a it's sort of this uh, set of philosophical beliefs. the The problem that we've run into is that at on college campuses and i think increasingly off of that if you don't buy into some of the precepts of this um you are going to be ostracized uh maybe not hired uh potentially even fired um and and some of the things you know there's a lot of debate over what it means um but one of the ways we see you know it used and whether or not this is fair to critical race theory i don't know um is uh for instance professors using the n-word in classes in tests um when they are you know actually just quoting uh black uh poets and authors um we've seen this in law schools we've seen this in undergraduate um the idea that even uttering a word even when you're not calling someone that when right. you, when it's clear that you are not saying that i'm using this to describe you um, the idea that actually just the use of that word itself is an artifact of white supremacy or racism or institutional racism, however systemic racism, however you want to say it, um, and that people need to be punished for doing that um, or for questioning the precepts themselves. And we have seen that um, several times, and I, I think we're starting to see that leak out as well uh, into the broader society. Oh, I don't think there's any question. And you're you're right. George Floyd, that incident happened here where I live in Minnesota. Uh, you know, just a downtown, not far from where I live. And it, it really was a turning point in this country. And the the racial reckoning, I guess, that it spurred, you know, I feel like there have been many of those throughout history. And uh, this, the Civil War being one of them, you know, the Civil Rights Movement, uh, Jim Crow, overturning Jim Crow laws. And so is it that we just keep history just keeps repeating itself, do you think? Are, do you do you have to battle CRT differently? Is it something you even have to battle? I mean, it, it, certainly if someone like you said, a professor uses that word on a test because he's quoting someone can really get in trouble. Yeah, I, I, this is it seems a little crazy to me. 
Well, I, th- I think that's that's true. A lot of people feel that way. Probably most people, and I I think there is, you know, while I I don't think all faculty members or even a majority of them are are real adherents of critical race theory, or you know, people who are just out in the streets and you know who are activists, um, you know, who are you know the day to day folks who are are working for you know their issue. Um, it is something that you know it's been used and and abused, I suspect, um, in order to create what back in the 1950s, we called the loyalty oath problem. And, and we know how this works. It's a, it's a parallel to McCarthyism, um, where, you know, we're going to demand that people in order to have a job, uh, as they used to, in order to you know, not be ostracized, that you have to denounce a certain viewpoint that you have to say, you're not a member of the communist party, all these right. sorts of things. You have to say, you believe in X, Y, and Z, right. or else we are not going to allow you, um, to have a state job, for instance, or work at this business, et cetera, work in Hollywood, whatever it is. Um, and so that idea of putting certain things just out of debate, um, yeah. anybody who crosses that, that's not really new. And the fact that it's different people doing it, I, I don't think morally makes the difference that maybe many people think that it does. We live in a very interesting time. I mean, I, it feels, it feels different to me. I don't know about you, but now that, that, is it, is it different? I mean, you said 2014 was kind of a marker in your experience, in your 19 plus years with fire, we're at a, we're at a different time, aren't we? It is. I mean, I can tell you just, you know, the, the main thing that I've had uh, contact with is students and, you know, I had a, discussion with a, a couple of folks from uh, Duke's student newspaper. I went to Duke uh, back in the late nineties. Um, and I talked, I was chatting with this guy and telling him some of the things that used to happen on campus, not bad things like, you know, political debates and things like that. And he said, well, you could never do that these days. And I, I stopped and I said, you realize that's not progress, right? right. Like you haven't made progress. If I was free to talk about something in the late 90s and now you wouldn't dare to do that um, a lot of that is social media they're afraid of being you know if they say something um controversial on campus in a class or something that someone's going to tweet it and they'll get dragged on twitter or facebook or whatever it is that they're on um part of it's that but also part of it's this willingness to really um you know be- to take everything everybody says in the most uncharitable light yes. uh, that you can in order to try to, you know, assert some kind of power. Yeah. And you know, one thing, you know, that is important to remember about people who are calling for the silencing of others is you don't call, regardless of why you're saying people need to be shut up, you don't call for the censorship, for the silencing of others, unless you think that you've got the power to do that. And so if you are calling for censorship, at least for the purposes of that, you think you're the powerful. So the idea that, you know, we need to censor certain words, we need to tell people they can't say things because it, you know, otherwise the powerless will be, you know, even hurt even worse doesn't make any sense because you you can't silence other people forcibly unless you have the power. And I think people don't really understand that. Um, I think some people, unfortunately, uh, do understand it all too well. Um, and that there's a lot of that, you know, I, I've never been in a cancel culture online mob or whatever, but, right. you know, I, I assume that like when you, you know, succeed, there's like that feeling of accomplishment, you want to do it again and that sort of thing. But almost nobody actually wants to live in a society where that 
is regularly happening. And yet here we are. And yet here we are. However, some of the people who are doing the are parts of the mob. Some of them ultimately wind up on the other end of that. And then they oh, learn yeah. the hard way that, oh, this sucks. You know, uh, maybe I should have, maybe I shouldn't throw stones at glass houses uh, because I live in one too. Um, I've learned a new appreciation for the golden rule. I think. Yes. It, it would be a little application of that would go a long way to say, if you're joining the mob, like, wait, would I want this to happen if this were me? That would not be a miss. I think that would not go amiss. <laughs> Do unto others, folks. Do mm-hmm. unto others. Uh, you must receive requests, so many, and you can't handle them all. How do you, as an organization, decide which cases to, to take on? Well, in the um, in the higher ed area, we actually try to take every case uh, for students and faculty members that um, that meets the requirements that we have, which are just that um, it be a violation of either you know the First Amendment um, on uh, university campuses or their due pro or due process uh, requirements. If it's a public campus, if it's a private campus, it has to be a violation of their own promises, and most of them are very similar. Um, to the First Amendment and, and other due process things. Um, we're having to be more selective, obviously, when, you know, taking on all uh, all Americans. And so there were, you know, we're not restricting ourselves to any particular kind of case, but we are looking for um, cases that are um, coming from people who don't have the resources to fight it themselves. So, you know, there are a lot of free speech areas where, you know, you might have Google on one side and Apple on the other. That's not interested in it. Like they're going to get awesome lawyers. They're going to fight that out. That's not what we're looking for. Um, And then, you know, areas where we can make a difference in the law to push forward the boundaries of free speech and remind people that they've got these rights and that they, you know, they mean something. We want average people to understand that the First Amendment protects them specifically. It's not some vague thing that they could see themselves in a situation um, like the one that fire is taking on. Um, and I, I think that'll be effective. That's remarkable. And, and, and are you funded purely by donation? How, how are you, how are yep, y'all paid? It's all donations. By foundations and, uh, mostly individual donors, um, actually. And of course, if you want to donate, please go to the fire.org and donate. And if you have a case, if you are being censored, uh, you can go to the fire.org, um, and you can submit a case there. Um, it's, it's right on the front page. And let us know what's happening. Um, I would urge people to do that because nobody can help if they don't know what's happening. Um, and you don't have to suffer in silence. Uh, I, 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 I'm so glad I learned more about you. And I'm so glad you're there. And it's kind of sad that you have to sometimes remind people that they have First Amendment rights. Like that, that should be something they know from the time they start school. You know, you, you've got exactly. this First Amendment right. And uh, so congratulations on doing what you're doing. And, and we will continue to support you in any way that we can. And like he said, folks, if you want to go to fire.org and chip in a little bit, I'm sure they'd appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really, really glad we had you on today. Thanks. Great to talk to you. Likewise. This has been Sideline Sanity. I'm Michelle Tafoya. We'll see you next time. So with the economy the way that it is, which is not great, makes you think about what is smart investing these days. I was given a gift of gold by my mom. My husband and I were gifted some gold for a wedding anniversary and we're really grateful. And I am really grateful 
to Charles Thorngren, who grow, who joins us now from Legacy Precious Metals, a sponsor of Sideline Sanity. Charles, we appreciate you so much. You know, we're hearing more and more about how inflation ain't transitory after all, and it may be here a while. And, you know, food shelves are getting, the lines are longer. It This is really, it's not the America I grew up in, and it's, it's worrying a lot of people. So if, if someone's thinking about investing, what do you tell them? You, you know, it's, it's an interesting conversation. Investing nowadays, uh, we, we want to go back to kind of the basics, really, where diversification has always been key. And, and we hear it. We've been told it ad nauseum, you know, diversify, diversify. And then everyone puts all their money in the stock market and wonders <laughs> why when there's a pullback, they're in trouble. Diversity means asset class diversity as well. You know, some real estate, um, some precious metals. These are the things that gives your portfolio the legs to stand through all the storms that will happen financially. And, and we know that they happen. They happen continuously and they recur. So that's what diversity is truly meant to do. And that's why people used to talk about diversity. So when people see the value of the dollar declining or they see inflation, um, how do you get the average person like me to understand that gold can still be appreciating or that gold can protect right. against that stuff. How, how does that make sense for people? You know, the, the easiest way to look at it is if you look at gold, right? Gold is the anti-dollar investment. As a dollar gets weaker, gold gets stronger. And we know that because it takes more dollars to buy that gold, just like cars cost more now, right? Um, Anytime you have inflation, the item that you're buying costs more. The difference with gold is that it doesn't devalue. It's considered an alternative currency. Basically, when you say that I don't have complete faith that this financial system is not built on a house of cards, or I don't have complete faith in, in what the current Fed is doing to fight inflation, this is where gold comes in. And this is where we see people increase their amount of gold because a diversified portfolio should have some gold regardless. We need to remember that the United States Fed says 2 to 3% inflation is ideal. So that means for the average saver, if your retirement account's invested and it's based in dollars, that you're going to lose 60% of your purchasing power to inflation by the time you're ready to retire. And that's under the best of terms. And now we can talk about the, oh, it's transitionary. Oh, no, maybe I was wrong. Um, maybe we need to do half basis points every month for the rest of the year and then see where it's at next year. These are scary things that mm -hmm. the experts are trying to tell us that maybe we didn't have it right. And this is why people have gold and this is why it offers that protection. It's interesting. Uh, I, you know, I think people think, well, if I'm investing in gold, do I actually possess the gold in, you know, I have it in a safe. Do I have, how do you get gold? How do you keep gold? Right. And, and physical gold. I mean, this is what we do. So yes, if you're buying it outside of an IRA, we can deliver it right to your home and you can put it in your own safe. You can put it in your safety deposit box. If you don't feel comfortable with that, we do offer storage for our clients as well. OK, so there's lots of options uh, in the IRA. It's stored for you, just like your IRA account. You don't have access to those stocks. So if you were to take funds from your IRA, you could make that investment and you'd have the retirement account invested in the precious metals as well. And it would be handled just like every other IRA account. 
That's really interesting. And, and now I'm going to ask you a tough one, and I hope you'll forgive me, but I'm just going to be candid uh, and, and a- ask what I think might be coming to people's minds. Sure. If the experts in Washington are making all these mistakes or they were wrong about inflation, then they're going to look at you and say, hey, Charles, why should I trust what you're telling me and why legacy precious metals is the place to go? I'm, I'm asking this in an honest sure. way because I because I, I know you want to be transparent about this stuff. So how would you Absolutely. answer that? You know, it really is. is I'm not a politician. Um, <laughs> I have no desire to be a politician. I like what I do, right? I help people prepare their finances. I help people with their retirements. I help people set up their funds so that their children and their grandchildren have something that's there. This is what I do. This is what I do for uh, enjoyment. Um, uh, very big in economics. Um, um, but metals is that thing that it's an alternative asset, right? When I was a stockbroker 30 plus years ago, it was unique kind of then. And then everybody was a stockbroker and everyone had stocks and there was nothing different. There was no protection. Everyone said the same thing. To me, it didn't make sense for everyone to be doing the same thing. If we all do the same thing, then we all fall together. And we know that if you follow the government's direction, you're buying into whatever they want to sell you. Now, it used to be politics was a little different. We've gotten into a place where we can't say that anymore. It's not always for the people. It's We see that. We see that what they're doing with the economy itself. We know that we have to have something else. And this is why we do what we do here at Legacy. And my history is is why people should, you know, give us a call, chat with us and see if it makes sense for them. Last thing I want to ask you about is I remember 2008 and I know a lot of people mm-hmm. do. And, it, 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 you know, that was a crash and there have been other crashes. But why is it that when the economy crashes, gold has historically risen? I know you said it's sort of the anti-dollar. Right. Is there a way in layman's terms to explain why that happens? It's, it's the safe place. Right. When, when, when there's so much risk out there and people are losing so much money, they just want safety. Mm-hmm. So l- let's look at inflation. We know right now we're running close to eight and a half percent. Yeah, uh, we can dig some real numbers out there and we can debate that. But we'll just take that number as it is. We'll use eight percent. That means everything cost you eight percent more this year than it did last year. And we know it's going to go higher because the Fed's already promised us a lot more interest rate raises right to fight inflation but we know it's not enough when they say things like we'll try to raise half a basis point five times over the next six months and see where the economy's at next year that in itself lets you know you need to find something that doesn't put your livelihood in their hands they're, they're juggling an economy and the stock market, and it was never meant to be that way. So you have to protect yourself. And this is where gold comes in because it is the anti-dollar. The weaker the dollar gets, the stronger gold gets. And, you know, 2008, I remember after it happened, um, the people that would call and try to salvage their retirement accounts. And it was a very devastating time. People would call and they would be crying that they can't retire now. They have to continue to work. 
they're 67 years old and their plants are gone because they lost half their value. And that's devastating, you know, but this is where those who were involved in gold, they saw gold almost double in price. It offset the losses. It offset the losses. So again, Charles is not suggesting that you put all your money in one place that not even gold, but diversify your assets and precious metals is a good way to go. And legacy precious metals is the only company I trust when I talk about and do my investing in gold and silver, and you can contact them as well. LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. I don't know why you would waste another minute thinking about it. Just talk to them. I mean, just ask them, see what your situation can can manage and handle and might require and just get some answers. Uh, Charles, I appreciate your time. Thanks for this. It's been very educational. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.